How vulnerable are pharmaceutical supply chains? A carbon-neutral cargo vessel is unveiled. And what's the current state of logistics? Pull up a chair and join us as the editors of DC Velocity discuss these stories, as well as news and supply chain trends on this week's Logistics Matters podcast. Hi, I'm Dave Maloney. I'm the Group Editorial Director at DC Velocity. Welcome. Logistics Matters is sponsored by Softion. Softion delivers powerful warehouse management, warehouse execution, and distributed order management solutions delivered on time, on budget, and on results with the market's only track record of 100% deployment success. That's why logistics leaders, including Casey Stores, the Duluth Trading Company, Do It Best, Saddle Creek Logistics, and many more are powered by Softion. Visit them at softion.com. Victoria Kickham is on vacation this week, so pinch hitting for Victoria is Susan Lacefield, the executive editor of CSEMP's Supply Chain Quarterly. Ben Ames is also with us to provide insight into the top stories of the week. But to begin today, a majority of the ingredients that we rely on every day for our medicines and pharmaceuticals come from just one or two major trading partner nations. Just how vulnerable are our medical supply chains and what can we do to safeguard them? To answer those questions, we welcome Dr. Emily Tucker, Assistant Professor at Clemson University's Department of Industrial Engineering. Emily, it's a pleasure to have you with us on Logistics Matters. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, David. As I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, most of the ingredients for our medicines and pharmaceuticals come from one main region of the world. Can you explain why that's the case? I would be happy to. Most of our the main ingredients for our medications come from India and China. We're looking at 75 to 80% of those ingredients. Largely, that's due both to the cost of production tends to be a lot lower in India and China than it does based in the United States, um, as well as production capabilities. Because they've been producing these ingredients for so long, they develop the know-how to be able to do it relatively safely. With that kind of supply coming from just one region of the world, does that make them more vulnerable to shortages or problems with supply chains? Mm. Uh, to some degree, it does. Um, whenever there is sort of a centralized either region or a centralized manufacturer or supplier, that means if there's any issue within that region, perhaps political instability or importation issues, that immediately propagates down the rest of the supply chain. Um, that said, even if it's within a given region, uh, if there were a diversity of suppliers, if they, the manufacturers were to contract with two or three or even more suppliers, that would give you redundancy in terms of the production. Um, that said, that's rarely the case. Oftentimes, manufacturers will have a single supplier of their key raw ingredient, um, which does make the supply chain vulnerable. Was that an exasperated by the pandemic that we saw more shortages of, of key components and key drugs? Uh, it has been. It has been. And that's been twofold. Um, one, on the supply side, um, there have been labor interruptions because folks haven't been able to get to work in the plants. There have also been other types of plant-related disruptions. And so that's on the supply side. It's affecting how much supply of these ingredients and medications can get to patients. On the demand side, we've also seen surges. Um, for example, this morning I saw one, um, let me pull up that name, it's Actimra. Um, this is a drug that's typically used to treat rheumatoid arthritis. 
it's recently been repurposed to treat patients with severe COVID-19. That means the demand for this drug is much, much higher than it has been typically. And if the supply is staying constant and the demand is going up, that can also lead to a shortage. So that's, that's certainly been a concern with the pandemic. So Emily, what does it do to medical supply chains when we can't get the drugs that we need? Oh, it's concerning. It's concerning. Uh, and the major effect is downstream at the hospitals, the health centers, and to the patients themselves. Um, at the health center level, uh, it's very, very expensive. If your main drug that you typically use is unavailable, there might be a second tier product, which isn't as good, um, but may be able to be used for the patients. And so that leads to substantial number of hours of labor uh, to make the changes um, in terms of managing and figuring out how to procure these supplies. And that's millions of hours a year. Um, it's been estimated that's close to 9 million additional hours that hospital workers spend even pre-pandemic dealing with and managing these shortages. And it leads to an immense cost. So it's been estimated about half a billion dollars annually for health centers across the U.S. to be able to deal with these shortages. And so, and that's not borne by the manufacturers, that's borne by the recipients and purchasers of these drugs. Unfortunately, downstream, one more level, the patients that need these medications, it's been concerning. Care has been delayed. If a drug is unavailable, um, care has been canceled. And so, there have been cases where chemotherapy has been canceled because that key chemotherapy agent hasn't been available. Surgeries have been delayed. It's, it's hard to measure exactly uh, what the impact has been, but the literature and the academic science definitely suggests that it is very, very broad. Yeah, it seems to be, and especially when hospitals are short-staffed right now with the pandemic and the, and the crunch of our healthcare system just in general. Are generic drugs, which seem to be in greater supply because of their popularity, any less vulnerable, or is it a matter of greater demand that makes them just as vulnerable? Ooh, you might be surprised that they are, in fact, they tend to be more vulnerable than these patent-protected branded drugs. And that's largely because one benefit is of generic drugs is the prices are much, much cheaper. And so it's cheaper for patients and health systems to be able to purchase these drugs. The downside to that is the profit margins are a lot tighter, which means that when a company is making a generic drug, producing it, they're also making a lot less money. And so there's less of an incentive for them to be able to uh, maintain a more resilient supply chain. And so these lower priced generic drugs tend to be more vulnerable than branded medications. Of course, you had mentioned that uh, cost is a major factor of why we source and manufacture from this region. And um, we often hear the huge profits that drug companies earn couldn't they afford the cost of a more secure supply chain? That's a legitimate question and a question I get a lot when talking about shortages. Um, I think it's twofold. Uh, on one hand, if we look at the profit of a, manu of a pharmaceutical manufacturer overall, um, say a company like Pfizer, I think because of these very large margins um, or very large profits, 
I think yes, in large part, these companies could afford to um, sort of maintain more resilient supply chains of their lower profit margin drugs. Um, that said, if you zoom in to these particular drug products that tend to be short, these generic medications, these injectable medications with very high cost, if we only look at a specific drug that's vulnerable to shortage, there really isn't uh, currently the incentive for them to be resilient for that drug product. But if you zoom out and look at the company as a whole, uh, there there would be, I think, in my opinion. Um, and so I think that's a question for um, the public as well as for companies um, sort of how to respond to that. And I think it's currently it's been unclear how pharma companies would respond. Are there particular categories or types of drugs that seem to be more vulnerable than others? Oh, that's a great question. Largely, it's this combination of generic drugs and injectable drugs. So we have these low prices, relatively low prices, and high cost to produce them. Um, there are certain classes of drugs or types of drugs that tend to be short more often. Um, these tend to be these chemotherapy agents, uh, drugs that are used to treat uh, central nervous system um, issues. Uh, let's see, cardiovascular drugs tend to be short, um, and it has to come with a manufacturing complexity, that it's very complicated uh, to produce these drugs, and when the prices aren't incredibly high, um, that, that makes it harder for a company to be more resilient. So we're, with lives at stake, we're really talking about a, a, a critical issue of national security, right? We definitely are because, as you said, these patient lives are at stake. Um, and so there has been a push um, at the government level as well as from advocacy and other medical groups to consider this an issue of national security. With that uh, designation comes legal status. And so there is an incentive at that point for additional funding, for additional mandates that could require companies to be more resilient. And so with that coming down the pipeline, it will be interesting in the next few years to see how regulations change. Um, and the justification for all of this, as you said, is that patients' lives are at stake. It's a concern if supply is not available. Well, you had mentioned about regulation, and that is part of the problem, I understand, is that these are highly regulated. And there are a lot of hoops to jump through to make any kind of changes in the supply. Can you explain how that affects, those regulations affect our drug supplies? Very much so. And when we consider the pharmaceutical industry in general, it's very different from a lot of other types of industries that the listeners might be more familiar with because of this regulation. Um, one example of this is um, the approval process that a company needs to go through to produce a drug, even on a different manufacturing line within a given plant much less to start producing that drug at a different plant entirely. That adds a lot of time as well as some cost to the process. And in general, what that does is it makes the pharmaceutical industry a lot less adaptable or flexible if a disruption happens. So I go back to this example of um, there is an auto manufacturer whose plant went down. Um, within a week, they were producing that particular truck at different plants. Within pharmaceuticals, that could never happen or can't happen in our given situation, um, the way regulations are set up. If a disruption happens, it can take months to be able to start producing it elsewhere. And so that certainly is something that I think the FDA is trying to work on. But 
is a part of the conversation as well. If disruptions happen, how can we help companies uh, do the right thing and help them be flexible uh, while maintaining these very important safety standards that we require for medical products? So, so we've talked a little bit about why there are shortages and the problem that we're facing with our pharmaceutical supply chains. Is it enough to just better diversify the, the sources of those supplies and make them more resilient? That would, that would definitely be a very solid option. I think when it comes to making a supply chain more resilient, there are a lot of different strategies. Um, diversifying the supplier base as well as diversifying the plants the drug is made in. Um, that would certainly add redundancy to the supply chain and would help uh, support a more stable uh, drug supply. Uh, another option for companies that perhaps don't have the resources to do that or don't have yeah, the ability to do that would be to invest in higher quality production processes. And so rather than relying on another plant uh, to pick up the the pace if one plant is disrupted, if that single plant that a company is using is a lot more reliable, it's less likely to become disrupted, that would be another option. And so I think two of the main strategies would be diversifying the suppliers and the plants or investing in very high quality production processes so that the disruptions don't happen. But of course, that comes with more costs, which means the drugs would be more costly to to create, and they would then have to charge more for them when we already have talked about the cost of drugs being so high already, especially when the government pays a lot of that with Medicare. So how do you get around that problem of cost? Absolutely. I think cost is a major issue and has been, uh, I think, is the main limiting factor to investing in strategies to improve resiliency. Um, I think my argument uh, in terms of investing in these strategies would be stepping back and looking at the cost of the system as a whole. We talked earlier that health systems incur major costs to deal with these shortages. I think if we shifted that cost to pay for higher quality um, supply chains to prevent them needing to pay for additional staff to pay uh, for substitute medications, things like that. If we were to reallocate um, sort of the cost to deal with shortages upstream to the cost to invest in preventing shortages, I would need to look at the numbers, but I think that would be a worthwhile investment and certainly lead to a more stable supply chain. Yeah, that, that seems to make a lot of sense. Would it also help to move some of the manufacturing closer to consumption here in the U.S., such as bringing it back to the North American continent somewhere? Yes. So I think it's important to remember that the causes of shortages are not only the fact that our supply is too far away, but that if a disruption happens, um, there's nowhere to go. And so I think if we do decide as a country or as, if the companies decide to bring manufacturing back, it's important not only simply to bring it back, but to invest in these higher quality facilities and or to invest in multiple facilities to have that redundancy in the supply chain. So should companies also be looking at carrying more safety stock to ensure an adequate buffer of supply? Or is it a matter of that just not enough is produced? Or do expirations also play a role in that, that uh, they have a limited shelf life with some of these medications? That definitely plays a role and I think is one result of um, sort of contributing to this vulnerability that if a disruption happens, the supply is just out. It's no one is very little safety stock is being held at any layer of the supply chain, whether it's the manufacturer or the wholesaler or within the hospital systems. 
And that's due to this very cost-constrained situation that the health system is in. Um, that could be an option. Um, I think one of the main deterrents to that is how long these shortages tend to last. The average shortage is over a year. And so to be able to support um, sort of continued supply during that, the safety stock levels would need to be very, very high. And so in some of my research, um, I found that safety stock would be useful, um, but the cost of maintaining that level um, would essentially pay for a company to be able to, or would be equivalent to them simply having a second supplier or investing in higher quality manufacturing. And so it could be an option, but it's probably not the most cost-effective option. Perishability definitely comes into play as well. And so if a company were to start maintaining um, large levels of safety stock, it would be important for them to rotate their stock. And so the inventory they're sending out or the supply they're sending out is from their oldest inventory and continuing to move forward. And so that way we're not having the case that uh, drugs are expiring on the shelves. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Are there any other things that we should be doing to look at this issue and make sure that we maintain a resilient supply chain for our pharmaceuticals? Um, I think one thing we need to do is start making uh, big changes in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, drug shortages have been an issue for 20 years now. Um, it's really only in this COVID time that a spotlight has been shown on the medical supply chain. Um, but unfortunately, this has happened for years, leading to immense cost and deaths and patient health issues. Um, and so there have been pushes, whether that's regulatory in terms of mandates for companies to be more resilient if the drug is critical and life-saving to patient health. Um, I think companies could also take the lead on some of this, investing in higher quality supply chains. Um, I think the main issue is we know it's an issue, it's been shown it's an issue, but we need to start making some changes to address that. And I think that's where the industry is currently lacking, uh, either both from the companies or from the regulators perspective. It's an issue, but changes aren't happening to actually fix it. And I think we're at the point that we have enough information to be able to start making some of these changes. We've been talking to Dr. Emily Tucker, the assistant professor at Clemson University's Department of Industrial Engineering. Emily, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for being with us and, and helping to share some of these insights into our pharmaceutical supply chains today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Now let's take a look at some of the other supply chain news from the week. And Ben, you wrote this week about how one ocean carrier is looking into the purchase of carbon neutral container ships. What more can you tell us? Yeah, that's right. We heard this week that the maritime container giant Maersk is taking steps towards its existing pledge to decarbonize its operations. Um, it said that it would replace some of its typical uh, oil burning, it's called bunker fuel burning ships, with cleaner emissions methanol powered versions, uh, beginning when it takes possession of uh, the first of those new ships in the first quarter of 2024, uh, about three years from now. Uh, so that's significant uh, because maritime shipping is a large source of uh, emissions uh, and container lines have recently begun uh, moving throughout the industry toward more carbon neutral goals to fix that. In part, that was forced by uh, the launch uh, last year of what's called the IMO 2020 regulations, which is a set of environmental standards issued by the International Maritime Organization, that's the IMO, uh, that are designed to curb air pollution. 
uh, by banning the burning of high sulfur fuels. The, the problem so far has been that finding alternative fuels with low sulfur is more expensive uh, than the traditional stuff. Uh, so that leaves a lot of the container lines uh, looking for alternate uh, solutions. So previous designs of methanol uh, burning ships, which would fit that demand, uh, have been small, uh, just about 2,000 um, container loads on them. Uh, but the capacity of this new one that Maersk uh, is buying is 16,000, which is really on uh, a, a comparable scale to, to the enormous uh, ships that, that you see uh, typically entering cargo ports today. Uh, it's built by Hyundai Heavy Industries, and Maersk has an option for four more vessels uh, the same year, or the following year, I'm sorry, in 2025. Uh, and another reason that a lot of the container lines are moving in this direction uh, comes from consumers uh, and therefore from the retailers that serve them, um, who, who are, of course, uh, the container lines customers uh, when those retailers send its shipments. Uh, because Maersk gave an example that uh, saying more than half of its 200 largest customers have uh, low carbon targets for their supply chains. And those customers of Maersk include some huge names, uh, Amazon, Disney, uh, you know, Microsoft, Procter & Gamble. So uh, all the companies that really uh, fill the shelves where we all shop. Yeah, that's interesting that that's helping to drive it. When can we expect to see these ships make a real difference though in climate efforts? Yeah, great question, because that's where it gets a little more complicated. Um, as we said, that those new fuels are more expensive, and in some cases, that they're not widely available even. So uh, Maersk's new vessels will actually come with a dual fuel engine setup that allows them to run on either methanol or a more conventional low sulfur fuel. So Maersk says that finding the new methanol uh, might be a challenge. Um, it says it plans to run its new ships on that carbon neutral methanol as soon as possible, quote unquote, um, just saying that sourcing um, enough of the carbon neutral uh, fuel could be a challenge. You know, a Maersk executive, um, Henrietta uh, Thigason, and my apologies to her if I mispronounced her name, uh, the company's CEO for fleet and strategic brands, said that the addition to their fleet will give their customers access to the carbon neutral transport that they're demanding, uh, while bal balancing that need for competitive costs and flexible operations. Uh, so yeah, as you can see, they have uh, a lot of different, uh, sometimes conflicting goals to uh, keep in mind with this. Yeah, yeah, it certainly looks like it might be a bit of a challenge, especially finding all the fuel that's gonna be needed, but also it looks like a step in the right direction for ocean-going vessels. Thanks, Ben. And this week we welcome back Susan Lacefield, the executive editor of CSCMP's Supply Chain Quarterly. Susan, you've been very hard at work the past couple of months on the annual state of logistics issue of the quarterly, right? Yes, that's right, Dave. Um, so your listeners who may not be familiar with Supply Chain Quarterly, we are a joint venture between Agile Business Media, which also publishes DC Velocity, and the Industry Association, the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals. For the past 11 years, the quarterly has been putting out a special issue of the magazine that is tied to CSCMP's annual State of Logistics report. The State of Logistics report is now in its third decade, and what it seeks to do is quantify the impact of logistics on the U.S. economy. One of the main metrics that it produces is the annual U.S. business logistics costs. And the report compiles together leading logistics data and intelligence and tries to provide a sense of upcoming trends. What our special issue does is first 
summarize the main findings of that report. And then we have industry experts take a deeper look at each of the key transportation modes and sectors for logistics. So for example, we'll have an analyst from Drury talk about the upcoming trends in ocean shipping sector and someone from FTR talk about the rail sector. Um, the report summary really looks back on the past year, while the articles that we have from the industry experts are a little more forward-looking at trends that might be affecting rates and capacities for the rest of the year. So that's what it basically is. Yeah, were there any trends or insights that jumped out to you when you look at trucking and rail and ocean and inventory and all these other categories that are included within the report? Sure. You know, I, I think first off, it's really important to remember that even before the pandemic, transportation modes and logistic systems were strained and tight. There were capacity issues, labor issues, regulatory issues. In fact, if you think back in 2018, U.S. business logistics costs jumped a huge amount by 11.4% because of capacity constraints and rising rates. It was actually called a once in a lifetime experience. And the expectation was that shippers would be remembering this year for decades on. You know, 2019 hit, things settled down a bit, but then COVID-19 happened. And what we saw were business logistics costs went down, but that wasn't because of any increased efficiency in the logistics systems. It was because the economy overall was down and rates were actually high. Service levels were not great. Now in 2021, we're seeing the economy recovering. So capacity is even tighter across the boards. Rates are still high. Service is still down across all modes. Uh, and it looks like things aren't going to settle down anytime soon. There's actually a domino effect where tight capacity in one mode is making other modes tight. And labor shortages are making it hard to even get inventory off of ships or out of airports. Um, so volatility is going to continue. And logistic systems just don't handle extreme shifts well. And I think we're going to see the after effects of COVID-19 continue at least into 2022. Yeah, certainly looks true. And we also want to remind our listeners, too, that for details on this year's State of Logistics Special Articles, you can go to supplychainquarterly.com to see each of those individual articles that take a slice of the logistics segment and provide a lot of detail of what's happening in the industry right now as we stand. Thanks, Susan. We really appreciate being with us. Thanks for having me again, Dave. And we also encourage our listeners to go to dcvelocity.com for more on some of the stories that we talked about and, and news and things that we've been covering during the course of the week. And check out the podcast notes section for some direct links on the topics that we discussed today. Thanks, Ben and Susan, for sharing highlights of what's happening this week. Always glad to do it. It's a pleasure to be here, Dave. Thanks. And again, our thanks to Dr. Emily Tucker of Clemson University for being our guest. We encourage your comments on this topic and our other stories. You can email us at podcast at dcvelocity.com. And we also encourage you to subscribe to Logistics Matters at your favorite podcast platform. The new episodes of Logistics Matters are uploaded each Friday. And a reminder that Logistics Matters is sponsored by Softion. Softion helps companies orchestrate order fulfillment at the network level with distributed order management. And at the DC level, with Softion WMS Plus Warehouse Execution System. Meet customer demand at the least possible operating cost with Softion Solutions. Learn how at Softion.com. We'll be back again next week with another edition of Logistics Matters, so be sure to join us. Until then, 
Please stay safe and have a great week.